Good morning again and welcome. We are continuing this morning with our ongoing study of Paul's letter to the Romans, focusing in upon verse 18 of chapter 1, where we will in fact be camping out the remainder of our time together uh, this morning. Now up to this point, everything that we have looked at in this letter has really been pretty much uh, introductory or preparatory in nature. Uh, In the first seven verses of chapter 1, Paul introduced himself as well as some of the characteristic features of the message that he was commissioned to preach, which is to say, the gospel. And then in the next eight verses, Paul had some comments to make about the nature and dynamics of his relationship with the Roman church thus far, including his uh, as yet unfulfilled desire to actually be able to go and see them in person. Following that, Paul writes what we've been calling a kind of thesis statement in Romans 1, 16 to 17, this short but very dense theological summary that pretty much encapsulates some of the most significant things being said in this letter, and which Paul will then spend the majority of the rest of this letter expanding upon in various ways. So it functions in some ways as a kind of a prelude. But even more than serving as a kind of a prelude to what is coming, Paul's very encouraging words in this thesis statement are absolutely essential for his purposes in this letter. Indeed, and as we've already seen, by their placement at the beginning of what will prove to be an extended theological discussion, rather than placing them at the end, uh, but placing them at the beginning, they play an important role, a very important role in how we actually hear and respond to Paul's developing argument over the next number of chapters. At any rate, that's where we've been. Uh, That's what we've seen thus far in this letter and this morning. We move away from those kinds of introductory things, begin looking at the second, what is the second major section of this letter to the Romans, which runs from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through to chapter 3, verse 20. Before we turn our attention more fully to this next section, let's take a moment then to pray together. Father in heaven, please hear us now as we ask again for your mercy. Uh, It would be utterly ludicrous for us to ask for it or to even think that we could, except for the fact that you have so obviously gone out of your way to show it to us and to convince us over and over again of the sincere and deep and unflinching love and commitment you have made to us. And all of that has been done for reasons that are only fully known to you, but for which, when we are in our right minds, we are so very, very grateful. And so we do, in fact, ask for yet more mercy this morning. Guide us into an understanding of this text, an understanding that at least approximates some portion of what you intended us to see and understand. Draw us closer to yourself through this occasion. Cause us to know you better, to love you more, and to pursue you with greater and greater abandon. In Christ's name I ask it. Amen. I'm going to read uh, Romans chapter 1. I'm actually going to start at verse 16 to give you a little bit more of the context. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel... For or because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it 
the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now, we won't be looking at all of those verses this morning, but I did want to give you a wider context of what we will be focusing on uh, in this study, uh, which is verse 18. And as we turn our attention to that, there's going to be uh, sort of four things that I want us to pay attention to this morning. Firstly, we're going to take a quick overview of this next section, which by that I mean this larger section of 118 to 320. And uh, just so that you can have some idea what the next part of Paul's roadmap uh, here looks like and how it's kind of laid out. And secondly, we're going to see how this next section of the letter relates to what precedes it, specifically back to chapter 1, verse 17, because it's important to know that and understand that. And we're actually going to keep coming back to that verse as we work our way through this next section. Thirdly, and following that, I want to think for a minute about the wrath of God. And uh, what that means, what that looks like, and why that matters. And finally, I want to talk about some reasons why pastorally and personally it's important for us to engage in this uh, admittedly long and fairly hard look at the sinfulness of man and the wrath of God against our sin, which is what working through this next section is going to be like. Firstly then, let's just take a quick overview of what's going on in this section of Paul's letter. If you were to sit down... And just sort of read straight through from chapter 1, verse 18 through to, to 3, 8, actually, you would, I think, notice as you read how Paul seems to be addressing different groups of people within this section. Now, while there are, of course, and as always, differences of opinion uh, as to who precisely these groups of people are, I find myself leaning toward a guy named Morris and a guy named Cruz and their analysis of this matter. And in their view, there's really only two main groups that Paul seems to have in mind, which would seem to match up with the two groups that he's already recognized in earlier remarks, namely the Jews and the Greeks, which is to say the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And so the major text divisions within this section, as I see it, are the first division runs from 1.18 to 32. And the group that Paul seems to be addressing here in in that section are the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And one characteristic feature of this group is that they seem to have been operating without any particular loyalty to any particular moral framework. And Paul addresses some specific realities from within that world, including specific sins and practices and beliefs that mark them off as belonging to the category of the unrighteous. The second text division begins with verse 1 of chapter 2 and continues on through to verse 8 of chapter 3. That seems to be concerned with the Jewish people who are God's covenant people, who are operating within a particular moral framework, and yet 
who also show themselves to be no less sinful than the Gentiles whom they regularly cast judgments upon. And thus the Jews are just as much liable to the wrath of God as anyone else, chosen people or not. And after all that, and in the last part of that whole section, chapter 3, verses 9 to 20, after addressing both the Gentiles and the Jews individually, Paul takes up a universal condemnation of the entire human race that leaves everybody, without exception, justly deserving of God's wrath. And it's only after all of that that Paul then feels able to move on to what is the third major section, chapter 3, verse 21, to the end of chapter 4, where he's going to really expand on this truth about the righteousness of God that he's already introduced in chapter 1, verse 17. So that's where Paul is going so far in the letter. That's the road map focusing firstly on the sins of the Gentile world, the sins of the Jewish world, and finally upon the sin and the sinfulness and the culpability of the entire world. Which then leads to the next thing I want you to see, namely how this entire section of 118 to 320 relates to the very important Romans 1, 16 to 17, and specifically to Paul's words about the righteousness of God that is given as a gift by God's grace to unrighteous people. And the connection between that and this uh, upcoming section on sin and wrath, I think, can be fairly clearly illustrated by means of an admittedly um, imaginative question and answer session that John Stott and his commentary takes his readers through in order to kind of highlight the logical flow of the verses here. And in, and in this kind of imaginative reconstruction, uh, the Apostle Paul is in conversation with an unknown person. And Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. 16, first part of verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And the questioner asks, why not, Paul? Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Well, how so, Paul? Because in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed that is God's way of justifying sinners is revealed. Why is any of this necessary, Paul? Because the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness, godlessness, sorry, and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. But how have people suppressed the truth, Paul? Because what may be known about God is plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen. And so by means of this admitted uh, reconstruction and dialogue, uh, Stott, what he's simply trying to do is show the logic and the flow of Paul's argument here. And there is a real logic and there's a real flow to it. And within that flow, you see that what Paul has done is give us, he's given us God's solution first. In verse 17, his righteousness freely bestowed on sinners. And then he follows that with a description, an expanded description of the problem. Universal sin, and thus with the reason why we need a righteousness that only God can give us. So he gives us a solution, and he's now giving us the problem that requires 
that solution. And the reason, as we saw last week, or at least one reason why I'm convinced Paul has reversed the order of things there, is because, pastorally speaking, before he begins to blow away his readers with this sustained and rather searching indictment of the entire human race, before he makes uh, the hopeless circumstance in which humanity finds itself before a holy God patently and painfully obvious, before he does all that, he gives you this glorious truth of God's solution for humanity's sin and wrath problem. He gives you that first. He could have given it to us at the end, right? But he doesn't. He gives it to us early and he gives it to us first so we aren't undone by what he's about to say. And you have something you can keep running back to and keep reminding yourself of as we work our way deeper and deeper into the mess and depravity of the human race. So do you see that connection that Paul is making for us there and the preparation that he's making for us there? At any rate, there's the, mode, the roadmap, there's the connection. The third thing I want to touch on very brief, briefly is this whole matter of the wrath or the anger of God towards sinners and because of sin, because it's going to come up a lot uh, in this section. Uh, historically, and particularly within um, theological liberalism, uh, there has been an extreme reluctance sometimes to admit or allow that God, uh, particularly a loving God, could be described as a wrathful God. As if wrath and anger were somehow uh, beyond Him or perhaps beneath Him as a divine being. As if it would somehow be immoral for God to actually be angry about anything. To be sure there is such a thing, at least amongst human beings, there is such a thing as unrighteous and immoral anger. There's an anger that springs from our selfishness at not getting what we want, from our frustrations at being blocked from doing something or having something that we've already decided we must have and, uh, and which if we do not have, we cannot be whole or complete or happy or fulfilled. As James 4 says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. There is such a thing as unrighteous and immoral anger. Absolutely. But here's the deal. Paul's not talking about human anger here. He's not talking about anger that springs from human sinfulness and weakness. At the same time, is a response to human sinfulness and weakness. He's not talking about that kind of anger. It's not human anger at all. He's talking about God's anger. He's talking about God's wrath. He's talking about the anger and wrath of a being that is perfectly holy and perfectly just. Who, who knows all things, who is all wise and all powerful. He's talking about an anger that comes from one who lacks nothing, who needs nothing. So can it still be said that something as strong and seemingly negative 
as uh, anger and wrath can be attributed to a God who's also said to be good and loving and kind and merciful. Do these things not cancel each other out? Do they not contradict each other? And the short answer is no, not at all. In fact, the surprising thing about a loving God is not that he would be capable of wrath and anger in the face of sin and evil in a fallen world. The surprising thing would be if a loving God never got angry at those things. I mean, just thinking about from the lesser to the greater, I mean, we all know, right? And have heard and sometimes have been victims of ourselves countless stories in the news from our neighbors, from within our own families, sometimes uh, at our schools, through the internet, etc. But we all know the reality of horrible injustice. We know this, right? Either historical injustice, as in the concentration camps such as Dachau and Auschwitz during the Second World War, or maybe something more contemporary, a gang that randomly decides to attack and beat to within an inch of his life some passing stranger, or worse, children that are neglected or locked in closets for years. We hear of these kinds of atrocities all the time, these grave injustices that are all around us and that incite real perfectly justified anger at the wrongness of it all. It's not the way things are supposed to be. And we know that. We sense it deeply within our being, within who we are. In the movie uh, Grand Canyon, which came out a number of years back, there's an immigration attorney who gets stuck in traffic and he's doesn't want to wait, and so he tries to create a shortcut and drive through some side streets going through town, and uh, he unfortunately doesn't pick a good path, and he uh, gets into worse and worse part of town. Eventually, of course, his car breaks down, or there wouldn't be a plot for the movie. And so uh, his car breaks down, and he manages to get a telephone call off to a tow truck driver to come help him out uh, before he's then surrounded by, I think, five teenagers... Uh, who are armed and angry and up to no good. And, uh, and just as they're about to close in on him and do their worst, uh, the tow truck driver shows up, who is uh, Danny Glover, and he starts hooking up the car to the tow truck as these other guys are kind of converging on the car. And uh, they start to give Danny Glover, the tow truck guy, a, a hard time because he's basically interrupting what they're doing, and they don't like it. And so he takes the leader over to the side, and he says this to him. He says, he says, man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can, and that dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. And everything is supposed to be different than what it is here. And that's right, isn't it? I mean, don't we, don't we know that? Don't you sense that every single day? I think of course we do. And, and if we, 
as finite, sinful, broken people with such limited understanding and even more limited perspectives. But if even we can be rightly incensed at such things, how can we possibly imagine that a holy and just God could not be angry at the reality and the effects and the outworkings of sin and evil in this world. Indeed, far from being incompatible with this love, anger and wrath are absolutely required from a loving God who sees the destruction of what is good and right and the rejection of what is faithful and true and the utter disdain expressed toward Him by the very people He has created and who daily benefit from His kindness and His patience in countless ways. How could a good God not be angry at such things? And to further illustrate, I think any parent, any parent who spent any time raising a child or children in this world, any time loving them, sacrificing for them, serving them over and over again, uh, any parent understands this the complete compatibility of having on the one hand this kind of fierce, unchanging, abiding, deep love for your children and at the very same time real, legitimate anger and disappointment felt toward the very same child often in the very same moment. So a God who is incapable of wrath against human sin or was oblivious and unmoved by the godlessness and unrighteousness and brokenness that is everywhere to be seen in this world. A God who is some sort of just smiling fool in the sky who's never stirred up or never angry. A God that would, like that, it wouldn't be a good God. He would be a monster. And he would not be the God who is. And so, and by way of summary, when Paul talks about the wrath of God being revealed here, and as he talks about it more, um, and as we look at that and think about it uh, and in the weeks ahead, I want you to know that that isn't just figurative language. It's not just poetic language that doesn't have anything to do with how God really is in Himself. This is descriptive language. This talking about God's very real anger and very real wrath towards sin and unrighteousness. And even further, this isn't just a wrath that once was revealed and is over and done with. It's a wrath that has been revealed that is actually currently being revealed right now and will be revealed yet again in the future. If we had more time, there's all kinds of things you could say about that, how the wrath of God is revealed in the past in various ways, including especially uh, through the cross of Christ, which reveals both the righteousness of God and the wrath of God side by side. Then you could look at how it's revealed in the present uh, through the realities of death and through the reality of decay and disease and the effects of the fall and things like that. In fact, the next few verses are going to talk about other ways that the wrath of God is presently, right now, being revealed all around us and even within us. 
So there's more to be said about that subject. We're not going to say any more this morning, but uh, nevertheless, we will come back to it because there are some important things that we have yet to talk about and think about together on this subject. So just stay tuned with that. And finally then, after looking at Paul's uh, roadmap for the section of the letter coming up, after seeing how all this connects with what he said so far, after thinking for a moment about the reality and indeed the rightness of God, our God, uh, who, might, who is truly and justifiably angry and wrathful towards sin and unrighteousness. After that, I want to just finish out by thinking just for a moment about two reasons why uh, taking the time to look at this extended discussion and treatment that's in front of us now on human sin and the wrath of God, uh, why that can actually be and hopefully will be a really helpful thing. Uh, firstly, as, as one commentator has astutely observed, uh, anything that makes us take a long, hard look at the human heart and the human condition in sin and God's response to it, uh, anything that makes us do that or helps us do that is a good thing. Anything that helps us to understand better the inner workings and dynamics of sin and evil and then the outworkings of sin and depravity in the human heart, it is and it can be ultimately a helpful thing. Because to the extent that we understand these things better, we will understand ourselves better and in particular, in particular and the human heart better in general. And please don't miss the significance of that for you and me, especially as we move forward in the weeks ahead. Please understand that as we work our way through this section, the purpose is not so that we consider the various ways that sin and unrighteousness has manifested itself, continues to manifest itself in other people. Okay, that's not the point. I don't want you to read through this section as if it's talking about someone else. I want you to read... It as if it's talking about you, and it's talking about me, and your heart, and my heart. Because it is. When we get to the end of this section, we'll see that Paul is describing the human condition in general, in universal terms, in terms that apply to every single person in this room, and every single person not in this room. So these verses are talking about us, about you and me about my heart and your heart. And if we listen, if we pay attention, and if we take courage from Romans 1.17, so that we can face the full implications of what's being said, if we do all that, we could learn some things here. We can become better understanders of our own hearts, better diagnosers of the human condition, better helpers to our friends, better listeners, better rebukers, better encouragers, better gospel reminders, better gospel appliers. In short, as one writer talks about it, there's wisdom to be found in and through this process. Truth that will make you wise unto salvation. There are realities that will, among other things, result in your becoming the sort of person that other people... Other brothers and sisters seek out for help and counsel and truth-telling and encouragements because they've learned over time that when you talk about the realities of sin and struggle and the deceitfulness of your own heart, you talk as a studied fellow traveler. 
as someone uh, who seems to know this thing pretty well and who's learned better how to deal with and respond to these things and who's thought long and reflected deeply about the human condition. So that's one way this can be a huge help to you and to me and really to the entire body of Christ as we minister to each other. That's one reason why it's worth taking the time to work through this, even if it takes a little while. The other reason this section of Paul's letter is so good and will be so good is for us is because after a sustained season of thinking about human sin and depravity and with that about the wrath of God, it should, if anything, it should have the effect, I would think, of heightening our appreciation of the grace and mercy that God has shown. In short, taking the time to think about the human condition under sin is a thing that God will use to cause you and me to love the gospel. Ever since I became a Christian back in 1980, I've been singing uh, off and on whenever we got to it and sang it. You know, the, the hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. And um, I can tell you that my understanding of and appreciation for that hymn has grown over the years. The truth were told, in my early days as a believer, if I was being completely honest when I sang that song, I should probably have not been singing Amazing Grace. Uh, If I'd been honest, I would have been singing uh, Pretty Good Grace... How sweet the sound that saved a person who, yes, has some legitimate sin issues, but who nevertheless is nothing like so many other people that I know about. If I've been completely honest about how I understood grace, how I understood my own heart back then, that's the way I would have been singing that hymn. But God has been working. He's been faithful. He's shown me my heart in so many ways and through so many situations. And the grace that was once pretty good became good and really good and then really special. It's starting to get in the realm of amazing and I think before it's all over with, it's going to be mind-blowing grace. And likewise, the understanding of my own heart and my own sin and my own brokenness that has grown exponentially over the years has drastically affected how I understand God's kindness and grace and how I sing that hymn and how more and more I think wretch is exactly the right word to describe my own desperate heart. I never used to cry when I sang that hymn. Now it's very rare that I don't. And that's why taking this time to work our way through this next section, rather than sort of uh, racing through it in a sermon or two, is, and I think can be, a helpful thing. As God uses it to help us to love the gospel that has saved us. It causes us to not just love it, but to crave it, to want it like a person needs air. And then beyond that, my hope is that taking some time in this section will not only help us to love the gospel, but more to the point, love the God of the gospel. To love not only the truth that we have been saved, but love the one who has saved us. To 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 be that much more committed and deeply in love with a God who loves us like this, who has pursued us this far and who has become dear and precious to us and completely worthy of our imitation 
and obedience and faithfulness. And so draws those things out of us, not because it's our duty, but because it's our aspiration. And he does it by his breathtaking kindness, by which he leads us again and again to repentance. So I'm looking forward to the things that he's going to show us in this section ahead. And uh, I hope that you are too. Let's pray together. Father, please help us to see the good things that are in your word, to take that away uh, with us this morning. Help us to, as we, in our own time, in our individual time, in your word, as we look through this important letter, please strike our hearts and minds with the things that we need to hear and the things that you want us to know and understand, areas where you want us to change and grow, the areas where you want us to be encouraged and challenged. Father, we thank you that you do that, and we thank you that you are, by that process, you're finishing the good things that you've started. We thank you for that, and we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Those who are taking up the morning offering will come forward. We'll collect that at this time.